The Destiny Foundation is proud to present this series of lectures by Rabbi Beryl Wine. We hope you enjoy. Friends, uh, all rumors to the contrary notwithstanding, uh, the Lord is on the side of rabbis. And uh, two weeks ago, I was invited to speak in Chicago on a Sunday night. And that Sunday afternoon, the Chicago Bulls obliterated the Orlando Magic. So when everybody came to hear Rabbi Wine, they were in a great mood. And the lecture was a tremendous success. And here I arrive in Denver on the same day that the Colorado Avalanche has brought a championship to the Far West. So again, I don't want to claim full credit for it, but the third overtime is me. <laughs> I wanted to uh, spend a few moments, if I may, uh, discussing uh, what is uh, called the Israeli election. I am not a uh, political pundit. I know uh, no more than anyone else. Will Rogers used to say, I only know what I read in the newspapers. And uh, I am quick to admit that the Lord has not spoken to me in the last two weeks, and I have no prophetic insights either as to what the developments are going to be. But I think that an important thing has happened, and I would like to place it in some sort of historic perspective, because being a Jew means that you cannot see things short-run. Always has to be long-run perspective. We're 3,308 years from Sinai, a long time. We've seen a lot of things happen. So 3,308 years, a very, very long time, except that if I can if I may personalize it and put it down into our terms, uh, this past Passover at the, our family Seder in my home, so I am blessed that my father should live and be well, is with us and active, and uh, my father is now uh, coming close to a century of life. And he knew his grandfather, who was born at the time of, before Waterloo, before the Napoleonic Wars. And at the Seder, we were blessed, we had four generations at the Seder, because my grandsons were also at the Seder. And I have grandsons that are bar mitzvah already. So we had all four generations working on each other participating in the Seder, and uh, God should grant my grandchildren years and health, uh, they will extend well into the 21st century. So sitting at our table was 300 years. If you can imagine 11 such tables, you're back to Sinai. And then 3,308 years is not that long a reach any longer. And that's how Jews always saw themselves. Somehow in the coming of the Enlightenment, of the confusion of the last centuries in the Jewish world and the general world, 
the difficulties of trying to adjust to American life, a large section of the Jewish people lost themselves. They have amnesia. They don't know where they came from. You wake somebody up and you say, who are you? Where are you? Even if you don't have amnesia, it takes you a moment to put yourself together. But if you don't know who you are, your father never told you, your grandfather never told you, you don't even know you had a great-grandfather, you don't know where you came from, you know what the story is. It's very hard to place oneself, therefore, in any sort of perspective. And therefore, we make short-term decisions, which look great for 10 years, 30 years, 50 years, 100 years, and then turn out historically to have been tremendous errors. And therefore, in order to look in the future, you have to look in the past. When you drive an automobile, careful, cautious driver always looks in the rearview mirror. If you drive without a rearview mirror, eventually you're going to get into trouble. And a lot of people drive without rearview mirrors, Jewishly speaking. Therefore, when you read about the election in the newspaper, it's without a rearview mirror. Because the newspaper talks that the election was about the peace process, about the right and the left, about uh, American-style politicians versus European intellectual politicians, all of the things that the general newspapers love to revel in, but most of the time the newspapers don't get it right. They don't get it right about things that we ourselves know. Uh, there are many reasons why, but that's not the topic that I want to address this afternoon. But they just don't get it. And by not getting it, you have a very skewed picture of what happens in the world. Theodore Bickel has a great uh, recording, a concert that he once gave at Town Hall, uh, about archaeologists that discovered the ruins of Washington, D.C. five centuries from now. And they tried to piece together the artifacts to know what happened. And they finally come to the conclusion that the name of the capital city of the United States was Pound Laundry, which is close, but it ain't it. All of the current political wisdom, in my opinion, is close, but it ain't it. So you're going to benefit from the only lecture in the United States that really knows what happened, why it happened, and what it's going to lead to. And I have the advantage of taking a plane tomorrow and not seeing you for a long period of time. <laughs> so if it doesn't turn out the way I said it did, I never said it. The struggle of the Jewish people in the land of Israel has two sides to it. There's an external side, which is the struggle with the world at large, with our Arab neighbors and cousins, a struggle for land, for power, for control, for nationhood, for the fact that 
the basic issue of who has a right or who has the right uh, to the country has never been settled. Jews came there beginning in the 1870s and they began small colonies of farms, of agricultural development. The Arab population was much more numerous than the Jewish population. Uh, the country belonged, so to speak, it was part of the Ottoman Empire under the Turks. But from the year 1846 onwards, uh, the city of Jerusalem itself always had a majority Jewish population. At the turn of the century, there was a great revolution in Russia, which culminated in 1905 in the attempted overthrow of the Tsar. Many of the revolutionaries were Jews who uh, were radicalized by the terrible situation of the Jews in Eastern Europe, the poverty, the infant mortality. There was no Jewish family that did not, God forbid, know of child loss. It was expected. It was part of being alive. Uh, Forty percent of Jewish males were unemployed. And therefore Jews invented all sorts of crazy jobs so that everybody would be able to say that they had a job. Because it was a shame as a Jew to say that you were unemployed. You did nothing. So there was a man that walked around in the morning and knocked on your door and woke you up to come to the synagogue. That was a job. It was called a vetter. There are many Jews who are called Baker in the United States, whose Yiddish name is Vecker, because their ancestors were people who knocked at the window to wake you up to come to the minyan. An institution which I think we can revive. <laughs> uh, every synagogue has uh, three or four gaboyim to take care of the matters in the synagogue when one would suffice. But the reason that we did that was, again, the social reason. You had a job, you were in the synagogue. Uh, you see all of these vestiges, by the way, in the modern efficient state of Israel, where you have somebody that brings in the tea when you're having a conference. That's his job. Or you have uh, the last place in the world in Tel Aviv where you have a uh, bus driver and then somebody gets on to look at the bus ticket to make certain that you paid. But that's a job. And the mentality of not having jobs for 200 years is baked into the psyche of the Jewish people. Then we don't want people not to have jobs, and therefore we would prefer to have inefficiencies. These radicalized Jews who came to the land of Israel uh, attempted to build utopia. Now, we know that in our time, utopia has bankrupted. Stalin cured us. The evil empire cured us. We know now, a hundred million graves later, that we know that utopia is not within our reach, at least not with those methods, and not with a state-controlled economy, and not with all of the great promises of Marx and Engels and Kant and all of the philosophers of the 19th century. 
we're after Auschwitz. We're after the Gulag. We're smarter. Hopefully. But in the 1900s, people still believed in it, the early 1900s. They were willing to die on the barricades for it. And therefore, a flood of Jewish revolutionaries came to the land of Israel. And they created uh, idealized societies. The kibbutzim. So the, key, the <coughs> picture of the Jewish farmer, kibbutznik, became a heroic figure in Jewish life. Uh, it is not a uh, secret, though it is certainly not said publicly, uh, that the kibbutz doesn't work. It doesn't work economically, it doesn't work socially, it doesn't work morally. It just doesn't work. And the uh, Israeli government has pumped in billions of dollars over the last 30 years to keep the kibbutzim going because ideologically, Emotionally, uh, they're not prepared to say, and closely enough, would be IBM or AT&T, uh, we would euphemistically downsize them. Because it doesn't work. But it took a long time to find out that it doesn't work. These people, and after the First World War, uh, another great influx of Jews came. So the influx of Jews who came after the First World War came under the promise of the British Mandate. The Balfour Declaration had promised that there would be a Jewish national homeland in the state of in Palestine. At the same time, they promised the Arabs that there would not be a Jewish national homeland in Palestine. And England attempted to live up to both of those promises at the same time. They, uh, an impossible situation uh, which led to uh, tremendous tension which still exists today. England's policy was that since neither policy would be fulfilled, both sides would be subservient to England and England would maintain its rule over the country indefinitely. It didn't work out that way, even though the experts predicted that it would. And finally, in 1946, after the uh, terrible Holocaust and uh, the uh, events of the Second World War, England was forced to withdraw. When England withdrew, so the United Nations came up with a plan that certainly was not a plan, but it had to, it had to, be, a, it had to be some plan. The plan was to take a very small country and cut it in half. <coughs> and give half to the Arabs and half to the Jews. The Jews accepted the plan, uh, feeling that anything they got was better than what they had before. Uh, the Arabs refused the plan because the Arabs were convinced that they would be able to destroy the Jewish community in Palestine and that it was, time was on their side and there was no reason to acquiesce to anything. In a series of wars, 1948, 1956, 1967, 1983, 1983, uh, the Jewish people were able to maintain themselves against the Arab onslaught. But the war uh, 
constant war, 50 years of war, never-ending war, war where grandfather, son, and grandson all serve in the army, because you serve in the Israeli army till you're 55. So I know families that uh, were called up in the war, that the grandfather was called up in the reservists, and the father was called up in the tank corps, and the son, who was then 18 years old and just starting, was in the infantry. After a while, that wears on you. And therefore, there has been search, a legitimate search, to see if there's any other way out of this impasse of two people occupying the same country. And not only, uh, you can't even draw a line today uh, because of the fact that uh, the, both populations are intermixed. Uh, that's really the basic problem of attempting to control terrorism is that it's not like uh, even in the United States we cannot protect our borders from infiltration. But here where you're living in the same, really in the same neighborhoods and where everybody looks the same and talks the same, the Arabs speak Hebrew and the Jews speak Arabic, uh, it is not a simple matter. Hence the peace process. Uh, I, uh, I'm convinced that uh, what has happened is to a great extent irreversible. Uh, you're not going to go back to 1990 or 1991 no matter what. You can't go back. For just the facts on the ground won't allow it. But what will happen in the future, no one knows, because there's the status of Jerusalem, there's the question of ever negotiating with Syria, all of those problems, no one knows what's going to be, and no one knows, I don't, the Israelis don't know what the negotiating stance is, and no one knows what the Arab negotiating stance will be, and no one knows what the circumstances will be. That's the external part. That's the part you read about in the newspapers. But there's an internal part, which, in my opinion, is just as important, if not more important. The internal part deals with the definition of the Jewish state, the definition of the Jewish people, and it has a great deal to say about the external part as well, because it's a question of will. It's a question of spirit. It's a question of determination, of tenacity. If one, uh, so to speak, does not believe in one's cause, uh, it's very difficult to negotiate under any circumstance, to negotiate successfully. The uh, past government of the State of Israel the one that was defeated in the elections, was the most uh, secular, left-leaning government in the history of the State of Israel. It was a government uh, that had as its unspoken agenda uh, to make the Jewish state certainly less Jewish, if not Jewish at all. By that I mean uh, the uh, tradition of the State of Israel had always been that on all matters of national security, the Arab delegates in Parliament and the Knesset, and there always have been Arab representatives in the Knesset, uh, their votes never were used 
to constitute a majority or a minority. Until uh, the Rabin Paris government, where Rabin and Paris stayed in power on the basis of the Arab votes, the uh, six Arab votes, and gave him the majority of 62 out of the 120 delegates in the Knesset. From that, other things flowed. Uh, there was a recommendation to change the words of the national anthem of Hatikva because they were too Jewish, because it spoke of Jewish longing and the Jewish state and Jerusalem is the Jewish capital, and they wanted to have a more generic uh, national anthem. Uh, for the first time in the history of the State of Israel, the study of the Hebrew Bible was removed from the SAT exams, from the Bagrut exams. It no longer was a requirement in the Israeli public school system. Yeah, for the first time in the history of the State of Israel, uh, the importation of, uh, the open importation of non-kosher meat and pork was allowed and affirmed by the government. Uh, for the first time in the history of the State of Israel, uh, 30,000 Christmas trees were imported uh, this past December. Uh, the reason for it is because there are so many Russian Christians who live in the country who came in as refugees. It's estimated that close to 30% of all the Russians who came to the state of Israel are not Jewish and never were Jewish. But it sure beats living in Kiev or in Minsk or in Moscow or St. Petersburg. And because of all of these changes, uh, the question then became, well, is the state of Israel going to be a Jewish state? Now, a, a Jewish state does not mean an orthodox state. See, that's part of the uh, paintbrush that is slapped on, that ends the discussion, right? They're ultra-orthodox, they're going to run the country, and everybody's going to have to have their tzitzis out to get off the airport in Ben-Gurion. And, uh, you know, and no television and no radio and no papers, and we're going back to the 12th century. And you'll notice in the polemics and the way things are written in the newspaper, there are always words that are used, fanatics. Uh, ultra. Extreme. Radical. All of those great code words automatically give us a picture of something before we see, before we examine the situation whatsoever. What happened in this election is that out of the Jewish vote, 12% of the total vote was the Arab vote. And that 12% of the vote went 97% for Paris, 2% abstained and 1% for Netanyahu. If you factor out the Arab vote, uh, close to 56% of the Jewish vote was for Netanyahu, and just a shade over 44% of the vote was for Paris, almost a 12-point spread, which in the United States is a pretty good election victory. 
the people that voted for Netanyahu, I can't speak for for them, but I have this sense, again, from, uh, first of all, I, I have a home in Israel, I'm an Israeli citizen, and I have a lot of connections with people all the time. Uh, they voted because they wanted to have a Jewish state. They wanted to have a state that would be a reflection of the 3,300-year tradition of their people. They wanted a state where, again, the study of the Hebrew Bible is a necessity. They wanted a state that would not be embarrassed or ashamed to say that it is Jewish. No one is here to remove democratic rights from non-Jews who live in the country. But it's a little like living in Ireland. I've been in Ireland a number of times. I've spoken there in the Jewish community. Ireland is a Roman Catholic country. And it conforms basically to Roman Catholic practice. It's a democracy. It's a modern country. It's part of the Western world, but it's a Roman Catholic country. And if uh, one doesn't want to live under Roman Catholic influence, then Ireland is not the place to live. A Jewish state is meant to reflect Jewish values. Uh, values of morality, values of marriage, all of the things that the Torah spoke about 3,308 years ago, we become full circle. If I may just digress, but it's not a digression. The Talmud speaks about same-sex marriages. The Talmud tells us that in the time of the Greeks and in the type of time of the Romans, who are not known as great democratic liberals, that the society agreed to same-sex marriages. They would write a marriage document one to another. The rabbi said that such a society will ultimately fall. I'm not talking good. The rabbis never spoke morals as much as they were pragmatists. I always say to myself, you know, if it works, and boys and yeshiva ask me, you know, should I, I say, if it works, do it. If it doesn't work, then it's silly. I mentioned to my, uh, I, I have very good friends in the conservative rabbinate and the reform rabbinate whom I study with, and I've, so once in a while we, so the way we remain very good friends is that we don't discuss religion. <laughs> But once in a while, it spills out. And so when they start up, and I start up, so I say, I have one rule. I said, if it works, I have no complaints. I said, if you tell me, since you said that it's permissible to drive to the synagogue on the Sabbath, do you have greater attendance or less attendance? Everyone told me less attendance. So then it doesn't work, so there's nothing to talk about. Since you said that patrilineal lineage is sufficient, do you have more or less? Everyone says less. So then it doesn't work. So then let's do something that does work. So you said same-sex marriages are not going to work. It makes, it's, it's a great issue, and it's a wonderful sound bite, and it's liberal, and it makes us all feel happy, but it's not going to work for the simple fact that there will not be another generation thereafter. The rabbi spoke about other things, about promiscuity, about a society that sells sex in everything that it does. None of these things are new. 
I always told my boys in the ninth grade that they didn't invent girls. The problem existed before that. <laughs> and therefore, they should listen to what an old man has to say because, you know, I went through it, right? I can tell you. I, it's not new to you. And that's how the rabbis viewed the world, right? We have a lot of experience. We've been here before. We've gone through this for 33 centuries. And therefore, uh, when we talk about a Jewish state, we're talking about building upon the experience. We've had two Jewish states before, both of which were destroyed, God forbid, but it happened. And it happened for reasons. And the reasons were that it was not a Jewish state. And if there is no inner spirit, if there's no tenacity, I mean, why should anyone who want to live in Tel Aviv when he can live in, uh, in San Antonio or Denver or Toronto or Vancouver? I had people I bought, my wife and I bought an apartment in Jerusalem. They said, what would you buy in Jerusalem? You know, you, could have, can, you know what you could have bought in Boca Raton? <laughs> well, I'm not interested in Boca Raton right now. It's not a real estate investment. My mother was born in the old city. I feel I'm coming home. And that really lies at the core, in my opinion, of much of what has happened and is happening and what the reflection of the election really is. That a majority of the people, not an overwhelming majority, but a majority of the Jewish people said, we would still like to have a Jewish state of Israel. If that means that we have to go slower in the peace process, if that means that we have to incur some of the criticism of our erstwhile friends in the world, and if that means that the world's press, I read Time magazine, I went, flew to Miami yesterday for a few hours, I had to speak to someone, so I read Time and Newsweek, uh, you're sick to your stomach. I mean, they write about, like, uh, they write that it's like, you know, we made such a mistake that it's irreparable, destroyed every chance that we ever have for anything. How do they know? When I uh, moved to Miami Beach, I became the rabbi there, uh, so I moved from Chicago. I'm an only son, so my mother, a blessed memory, uh, had a subscription to Time Magazine, so she mailed me Time Magazine every week after she finished reading it. Now, there's nothing as edifying as getting a Time magazine three weeks afterwards. Because then you see that 90% of what is there never happened, that's not closed, you know. But when you read it immediately, oh, you know, Time magazine said it. It was such an education to me. So I'm not afraid of the naysayers. I think that... Uh, it's going to be a long struggle. Struggle. There's nothing in Jewish life that happens overnight. It took us 200 years to get ruined. It's not going to take us two years to straighten everybody out. Uh, all of the effort and blood that has been invested in the Jewish state you know, will not just be abandoned, but there is a serious struggle for the soul of the people. The state of Israel will be represented by McDonald's, by having Madonna come the day before Yom Kippur, by Michael Jackson 
having concerts. Is that the state of Israel? Is that what we waited for 2,000 years? Is that our struggle? If that is, then, then Arafat is right. Then give him back. Give him back everything. He's, he, he wants it more than we do. And that's really the struggle. Who wants it more? I always hear Michael Jordan's brilliant analyses after uh, the basketball games, and he says it true. He says, we want it more. Because almost all sports teams more or less are equal. But who wants it more? The one that wants it more is the one that usually wins. So 56% of the Jewish vote in the state of Israel said we still want it more. I think we have to build on that. We have to be more inclusive. Uh, there'll be a lot of... It's all tied up with money and with politics and power. and All of the nonsense exists. It's like you have a radio that has tremendous static. But if you can ever get the station on right and hear it through the static, then you can hear something. The state of Israel has a lot of static going on. It's all the static that gets reported in the newspaper. But what really is going on, you have to listen to not only with your ear, and with your mind, you have to listen with your heart and your soul and your sense of tradition and your sense of destiny. I saw that, thank God, all the schools in Israel are full for this coming September. American Jewish children are going there. They're all the different types of schools. It's a great statement because as a parent who himself sent four children to the state of Israel and they were there for wars and I was there also I was uh, I was a recipient of one of Saddam Hussein's scuds I was there for it it's not fun and the entire years that they were there in Israel my wife and I, I tell you truthfully you know we, we were less than sanguine about it every day you read something something's always happening but the American Jewish community wants it as long as we want it, so then to wax theological, right? So then the Lord sees what we want. And the rabbis gave us a great rule in life, that what a person wants is what a person gets. If people want out, God lets them out. If people want money, most of the time they can get money. People want a different lifestyle. It's a free world. But if you want good things, God will give them to you also. You want to be a charitable person, God will send you customers. You want to be a scholar, God will send you somebody willing to teach you. You want to be a Jew, you'll meet Rabbi Meyer in an alley some night. God will do it for you. And in fact, the great Hasidic master, the Baal Shem, said, that in heaven they measure a person not only by one's accomplishments, but by one's goals. What did I want to be? In conclusion, I just want to tell you again personally, I'm a grandfather. When you get to be a grandfather in an exalted stage in life, so my goal in life is that I want my grandchildren to be proud of me. That's my sole goal now. I'm past a lot of things. I want them to be proud of me. I want to say, oh, you know, I had a fine Zadie. So I started to behave myself. 
<laughs> I think in those terms before I do things, before I write things. You know? Well, you know, what, what will my grandchildren say? So I think the measure of our lives is uh, what will my grand, what would my grandfather have said, and what will my grandchildren say? And if somehow we're able to tie those two questions together, and to see it in that view and perspective, uh, then I think we're on the right road. I think that's what happened in the state of Israel at this election. I think a lot of people remember their grandfathers. A lot of people do want to sell out their grandchildren. They want to have this kind of a Jewish state. It's going to be hard as nails to deliver, but the Jewish people are accustomed to difficult situations, and we're a tough people. We would not be here if we were not. Toughest of all people, iron. So we just have to hang in there, personally, communally, Myers Shul, the outreach programs, everything that's good for the Jewish people, hospitals, whatever you do, to do it positively, to do it in the sense and the spirit of the tradition that we are part of and that we are heir to. And I'm confident, even though, again, I cannot speak for God, but I'm confident that the Lord who has seen us this far will see us the rest of the way as well and that we will be privileged to see an Israel at peace, a world at peace, see that the advancements of the cause of civilization and humanity, and we'll be able to see the upbuilding of Zion and the comfort of Jerusalem speedily and in our day. Thank you. With their heart because of because the cross-section of the voters. It's, uh, 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 for instance, the Russian party that voted for Sharansky seven seats but the Sharansky said you know we didn't come here he said to be communists again you know, he's, we didn't come to be socialists again we didn't come to have a second we, you know we came here to, to try and be Jews so what his definition trying to be Jews may not be the definition of the Jews and may assure him but that to me is secondary because eventually history narrows out all definitions it's the same thing. There, the tremendous outpouring of the religious vote, which always religious people always used to vote. They voted for Likud. They voted for Labor. They voted for other parties simply because of the fact they were voting their financial interest, their greater national interest. And this time they voted because of the fact that they 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 don't want to be strangers in their own land. Yeah. Uh, two or three years from now. What do you think What I think will be different is the attitude will be different. What I mean by that, I think that if you have more traditional Jews uh, as the head of the educational system, I think the educational system will reflect more traditional values and more traditional Jewish education. Again, I'm not speaking orthodox, I'm thinking, speaking traditional in the sense of Jewish values. I mean, they, the uh, merits, the left-wing party, that has been running the uh, Ministry of Education for four years, uprooted every textbook. I mean, you can't imagine. It's like Stalin. They, they went out to re-educate the Jewish people in, uh, in really in Marxist terms, in extreme Marxist terms. I mean, if the religious behave like that, they, they, there'd be a revolution. I also see a difference in... Uh, in uh, 
in the preservation of what was called the religious status quo, which was broken in the last four years. And there's no reasons that McDonald's, a non-kosher McDonald's, should be open on Saturday in the heart of Jerusalem. There's no reason for that. When McDonald's can't do that in Mecca and can't do it in Rome, if you go to the Vatican and you want to visit the Pope uh, and you're a woman and you have short sleeves, they will not let you in. But if you go to the Western Wall and you want to go in the most outlandish costume and somebody will tell you, you know, this is a holy place, maybe you'll put on a jacket, you know, it's for you, you know, religious coercion. So uh, I think there'll be a change of attitude. I'd, I, it, this is a struggle that's going to take hundreds of years. It's not going to be over in two or three years. And it's going to be worn, in my opinion, it's worn in the trenches, it's worn in the schools, it's worn with with our children, with our grandchildren, with the attitudes, it's worn by eating kosher food, by having a Sabbath, that's how it's worn. It's not going to be worn by government fiat. But there'll be a change of attitude, and attitude is very, very important. Attitude is extremely important. What picture do you have on the wall when you come in? So the Ministry of Education used to have a picture of... Uh, a replica, I don't know, you know, he never had his picture taken of Maimonides, right? But that picture was replaced uh, by a picture of uh, John Locke. Now, John Locke may be a great man, but he doesn't have to be hanging on the wall in the Ministry of, uh, of Education of the State of Israel when you could have Maimonides there. So that's, a, that's just a nuance, right? That's an attitude. The difference is going to be attitude. I don't know if there'll be any difference in policy. In fact, my heart tells me that Netanyahu will now make the peace that Paris, had Paris made it, there would have been a civil war. And he will make it because he has to make it, and, uh, and that'll happen, like Nixon did with China, etc. It may take years for it to happen, but, but, that, but that's, again, that, that's the external state of Israel. I think the external state of Israel is dependent on the internal state of Israel. If there's a strong internal sense of I really want it and that it's holy and that it's a great cause and I'm part of a great historic drama, so then uh, the, the Jewish state is secure. But if it's uh, none of that exists, then no matter how many F-18s we have, it's not going to do it. It's a pleasure to be with you again. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. For information, please contact the Destiny Foundation at 1-800-499-WINE. That's 1-800-499-9346 or at our 24-hour fax, 845-368-1528. We can also be reached by email at info at jewishdestiny.com and you can shop online at www.rabbiwine.com. Due to copyright laws, we kindly request that there be no duplication of this lecture except through the Destiny Foundation.